Good morning, Riverside. Let us begin today with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge today as we have sung and as we have prayed, Lord, that we trust in you, that, Lord, our reliance is upon your Son and our ability is found in your Spirit. And, Father, we find your tender hand is always upon us. And, Lord, today, as in all days, we want to admit, Father, and confess freely that you are our God, Lord, and that you are worthy of our reliance, Father. Lord, we ask that you would help us to grow spiritually as a congregation, even at this time where we can't be together. That, Father, we would be able to take steps in our own personal walks with you, Father, where we'd be able to spend time in your word and spend time in prayer and spend time reading good books, Father, that would point us towards you. So that, Lord, you would, this, that you would use this time of respite, this, this break that we have, to help us to grow closer to you, I pray. And Father, we also pray at this time that you would help us to display gospel boldness in our lives. There are many people around us, Father, who are uh, so needing hope, so needing encouragement from your word, who need the gospel message. And we ask today, Lord, that you'd help us to be bold, whether it be through social media or through reaching out to a loved one in some way, that you would allow us to be able to share Christ clearly, Lord, lovingly and boldly with others, I pray, and give us confidence in you as we go. We ask, Lord, that you would graciously look down upon the people of your church here at Riverside Baptist, Father. Lord, we think of those who are hurting financially right now, who are sensing the danger of what uh, this shutdown of our economy could mean for their livelihoods. We ask that you would watch out for them. And we also pray for those who are in serious danger because of the health and healthcare environments that they work in, Lord. That you'll just be with those in our congregation who, Lord, uh, fall underneath those categories. That you'd allow us to do a good job of encouraging them and helping them, Father. And even stepping in where we can, Father, and being a resource. Father, we pray for those who face despondency because they are shut in and are not able to be around other people right now. Would you please help those, Father, and help us to find some unique ways to reach out to them, whether it be a card or a phone call, Lord, or, uh, Father, just um, checking in with some kind of a small gift. Lord, would you just allow us to be a, a loving encouragement to all of those in our church who are needy? We think of those, Father, even in our church who are tempted right now to waste this situation and to waste any additional free time that they might have rather than seizing these moments to draw near to you. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to approach this with wisdom as we continue to wait for the relief from this virus. I pray for those, Father, who are overburdened with more work than they had before even, Father, who have new duties and greater, Lord, uh, uh, responsibilities that tempt them towards anxiety, Lord. There are some who have more free time, and yet, Father, there are others who have even less. Would you be with them, Father, as they are perhaps nearing the end of what their bodies can do? I pray, Father, for those who are uh, battling fear today. I pray for those who are uh, trying to overcome frustration as we wait this out. I pray that you would be with them, Lord, and that you would allow us to strengthen each other, Father, in various ways. I thank you for the time we had on Thursday evening to pray together as a congregation. And Father, I pray that you'll just continue to help that be something that is a blessing to others 
as we come together, even if just by face through Zoom, Lord, and are able to intercede on others' behalf. Lord, I, I do pray, Father, that you would protect us from COVID-19 and all of its effects, that you would keep us as a church body healthy, that you would continue to provide for us in all of the ways that we need, Father, and that if it be your will, you would relieve us of this virus very soon. Father, we also pray that you would give wisdom to our governmental leaders at this time. Would you please give wisdom to President Trump, Father, as he seeks to be a leader who, who guides people in the right direction. Give him wisdom, Father, and remove any foolish paths from his mind. And I pray, Lord, that you'd have him to have good advisors to give him good instruction. I pray the same for Senators Rubio and Scott, our Florida Senators, and our Congressman Gus Bilirakis, Lord, uh, men who need some uh, great endowment of wisdom from you as they seek to decide how to help the American people, Lord, and how to help the people of Florida right now. I think of leaders at the Center for Disease Control, Father, who need wisdom as they seek to determine what would be the best recommendation for when to begin to move forward as a country and how to help states, Father, with the assistance they need in taking those initial steps. Be with them, I pray. And be with Governor DeSantis and all of our local legislators and leaders, even our local and county officials, Lord, as over the next month or two, they're going to have to make some tough decisions about what parts of our economy to get back going and what parts to keep still. Be with them, we pray. I also pray, Father, as we continue to wait upon you, that you would bless some of the other churches in our area, Lord, like Cornerstone, Father, and Sunrise, churches that are near and dear to us, Father, that we want to see continue to prosper. Help those people not languish, Father, by being apart, but give them strength, Father, in your word, and help them to be bold and strong testimonies for you, I pray. I also pray that you would strengthen the missionaries of the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board, Father, as they minister your gospel near and far away in these challenging days, which include being forced to stay away from people. Help them to be prayerful. Help them to be creative, Father, and continue to meet their needs, both spiritual and financial, I pray. And Lord, I pray for our testimony as a church right now, that you'd help us, Father, to be strong in our trust in you, that, Father, we would be able to very clearly give a reason to others around us for the reason for the hope that is in us, Lord, and help us to usher other people to Jesus Christ, I pray. Guide us now, Father, as we come and open up your word, as we look at this text in Matthew chapter 7, I pray that it would be a great blessing to us, Father, that it would instruct us, Father, and that it would also cause us to run very quickly and bow on our knees to Jesus, Father, the Lord and Savior, who is able to provide all the grace that we need to be able to accomplish what you've directed us to do. And I pray these things in his precious name. Amen. I want to begin our message today by reading from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. If you have a copy of God's word, follow along with me. Verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. A judge-me-not attitude, I think we would all, if we know Jesus, admit, has accompanied the speedy advancement of the modern sexual ethic in our culture today, so that the two are actually interlocked. A people who make egregious life decisions then disregard the mind of God entirely, and then they often say to those who question them at this, don't judge me. And with this, they often push back quite hard if it's pointed out to them that their actions will have dire consequences if they do not turn from them, consequences both now and in eternity to come. Unfortunately, many even in the church today have concluded that Jesus himself supports this never-judge-me kind of attitude when they take the simplest of glances at verse 1 without any context or careful inspection. And on the one hand, they're actually right. For too many Christians jump haphazardly into the arena of rebuke to the detriment of their own testimonies. With self-righteous spirits and with hypocritical lives, they utter stinging words that may have some truth about them, but sound an awful lot like that of a Pharisee. But yet we suspect that there is more nuance to it than this. That though Jesus is pushing back hard against such a judgmental spirit on behalf of his people, there is a danger of actually taking his words too far, further than he ever intended them to be taken. So what are we to do with Christ's words as Christians in light of what he says in chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. Well, let us Let us briefly recognize a few realities in answering this question before we begin to look at our passage today. First of all, recognize that several of the commands in the Sermon on the Mount cannot be taken unconditionally. And since Jesus has already spoken in so many ways that can't be taken unconditionally, then perhaps we should take verse 1 in the same way, not taking it without any conditions whatsoever. For instance, back in chapter 5, if you recall, Jesus said, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Now, he wasn't being literal, asking us to actually take out our eye and throw it away. He was trying to make a point by showing something incredible, something even egregious, something extreme even, that we are to do. We're to do whatever it takes to avoid the temptations to lust with our eyes. He also says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 3, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give to needy people. You're to keep it quiet. You're to keep it secret. He doesn't mean that you actually have to try to conceal what's happening in your right hand with your left hand. He's not removing all qualifications. He's simply using that to make a point. He does the same thing in chapter 6, verse 6, when he says, When you go to pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. 
Now, does Jesus mean that we should only ever pray when we get into, go into a room and close the door and pray in secret? Well, of course not. We see evidence of believers praying even in public throughout the rest of the New Testament. But what Jesus is saying is that we should be careful to not make our prayers about promoting ourselves publicly before other people. So there are qualifications that we have to give to many of the things that Jesus Christ is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. These commands, they make a point, but they're not to be taken absolutely without any qualification whatsoever. Secondly, with regard to this, recognize that Jesus' followers are clearly commanded elsewhere in the New Testament to render judgment upon each other, though always in a spirit of grace. Later on in this very gospel, for instance, in Matthew chapter 18, in verse 15, Jesus will tell these same individuals, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So Jesus is going to tell us to actually go to our brothers and sisters and talk about the ways we've sinned against each other, to be real with one another. Third, this very passage here in chapter 7 reveals that Jesus is not speaking against all judgments on our part, but simply hypocritical judgments. Verse 5, I think, bears this out. It says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, this is primarily dealing with Christian brothers and Christian sisters who are real with each other about the sin problems in our own lives. We must help them. But he says, only after we have helped ourselves, after we have taken care of our own sin problems with you, with God. John Calvin, he writes about this. He says, these words of Christ do not contain an absolute prohibition from judging, but are intended to cure a disease which appears to be natural to us all. And this disease is hypocritical judgmentalism. So what I think we'll take away from today is that we should judge other Christians with the wise instructions of Christ. That there are times when we should judge Christians, but with the wise instructions of Christ. And looking at our text today, there are three guidelines that Jesus gives us, I think, that we must each follow before we go about judging another or helping another person. Guideline number one that Jesus gives us, found in verses one and two. Before you judge another, you must recognize the danger to yourself. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. He says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We are to judge not in the sense that we are not to have a judgmental spirit in us. The Greek word for the verb to judge in verse 1 has a wide range in the New Testament, including judging at a trial or judging a person in a judicial sense or judging in the sense of condemning someone with words or actions or judgment in the sense of making a discerning choice about something or about someone or judgment in the sense of rendering an opinion over what is right or what is wrong in a given situation. 
So this word has many different meanings depending upon the context. And the challenge for us is to determine how Jesus intended to use this word judge right here in our passage. Jesus, I think, is is not telling us that his followers should never judge another person or never make a distinction with the way that someone else is living their life. This whole Sermon on the Mount, if you think about it, my friends, in fact has been has been marking his disciples off as distinct people from other people in this world. This whole Sermon on the Mount has been a judgment, in a sense, that distinguishes his people from those who are not his people. And numerous places in the New Testament actually tell his disciples directly to make judgments upon others. For instance, one of the most important passages on this is found in the book of Galatians. But in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The churches to whom Paul was writing to were instructed by Paul that if anyone ever came to their churches and preached to them a different gospel than the one true gospel, they were to render a judgment. They were actually to consider that person to be accursed as someone who is apart from God. That's a very serious matter. It also says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. It tells us there's many false prophets, many false teachers in the world, and believers have the responsibility of testing the spirits of those men who would proclaim a false gospel. So again, this is a great responsibility that's been given to the church, to actually pass judgment, to render verdict based upon what someone says or someone does. But here in verse 1, Jesus seems to use the verb judge in the sense of being a judgmental person. I think that's what he's getting at. So, so, so it could be rendered, do not be judgmental or you will be judged. As, as verses 3 through 5 tell us, the issue involves going to a brother or sister in Christ when something wrong has been noticed in that brother or sister in Christ. And the judgment that he warns against is, I think, the kind of judgment that is an eager and arrogant and graceless and excessively critical kind of judgment. As Calvin says, this is an undue eagerness to judge. It is this great desire to want to pass judgment down upon other people. It's not seeing it as a duty, it's actually deriving some kind of delight from it. This judgmental spirit is, I think, well represented by Paul in Romans chapter 14. When he writes about not judging others with regard to our Christian liberties. In Romans 14 verse 10 he says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. In the realm of Christian liberty where we 
all enjoy, if we know Jesus Christ, we all enjoy the freedom of conscience and the things that are not clearly spelled out in God's word. So in this realm of Christian liberty, we are not to pass judgment upon other Christians who enjoy certain things that perhaps we ourselves are not comfortable enjoying. Now, for instance, in the church at Rome at this time, there were some new, weaker Christians who were hesitant to eat meat that had once been offered to idols. And this is what Paul is addressing in Romans 14. But there were other Christians there as well, stronger Christians, stronger in their faith, and who, who, who knew that such food that once was offered to idols really meant nothing before the one true God because it was just simply food, and idols don't actually exist. There are no other gods. And so they had no problem eating the meat. Well, Paul's point was that the weaker Christians who did not eat the meat were not to be judgmental towards those who did. They were not to judge them, to render a verdict against them because of this. He goes on to say in verse 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. The stronger Christians, feeling free to eat the meat, were not, however, to disregard the weaker Christian brothers and sisters by flaunting their Christian liberties to do so. Instead, they were to put love of their Christian brother and sister ahead of themselves and possibly even surrender their own rights out of this love. I think this judgment is the kind of Pharisaic judgmentalism that Jesus speaks against here in Matthew chapter 7. I think he's referring to the judgmental spirits that should not be displayed when one Christian goes to another Christian. Instead, we're to hold each other up in love, and we are not to arrogantly and gracelessly and excessively criticize each other over these areas that are so questionable. If we have judgmental spirits, Jesus says, then we should be aware of the danger. He says, judge not that you be not judged. Jesus seems to be saying that those who judge others with this graceless, critical spirit should understand that they will be judged by that same standard that they've been applying. Verse 2 confirms this when he talks about the judgment you pronounce will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If this is you, my friend, if this is you, Others in this life are going to be quick to hold you to the same standard that you put upon them. And this is eventually going to have devastating results in your relationships. Because such a spirit often sows distrust with other people. And it ruins relationships even with other people in the church. And can even result in discipline from the church. So this spirit often comes with a great earthly cost. Also, there is a very real danger of being judged by God according to the same standard that you yourself have been using. You will one day stand before him, and he will judge you accordingly. If you judge others with a critical spirit, he will judge you the same way. Since you have seen fit to act in his place as the judge, rendering quick, decisive, self-righteous judgments upon others, God will hold you accountable to the very same standard. He says in Romans chapter 2, Paul does, 
Therefore, verses 1 through 3, Romans 2, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now that's a great warning. We judge people but do the same things. Do we think that we will escape the judgment of God? That's a great warning. There's a danger that's here. He says this even to Christians. Now some might ask, well, why does, if that's the case, why does Jesus give such a warning here to his followers about judgment? After all, aren't we his followers, even us today? Aren't we washed by his blood and declared sinless and righteous before God because of what Jesus did? If so, why then does Jesus speak of judgment against those people, even those followers who are judgmental? Well, that's a really great question if you're asking it. The mark of a Christian, my friends, is not that they never sin, or even that they never sin by being judgmental towards others, but that they are convicted about their sin and that they seek spiritual growth that is provided by God. And this passage by Jesus, it cautions us it cautions us in such a way like a warning sign does in our life. Think about the different warning signs that are around us. We see things like maybe danger, cliffs are ahead, or, or hazardous materials, or poison, don't ingest. Warning signs in life that are around us. They're warning signs given to us by a gracious God. This warning by Jesus is, is a warning sign given to us by a gracious God who warns us to keep focused on the direction he has provided and helps us avoid the dangerous pitfalls that are around us. These warnings are actually one of the ways that God uses to keep us walking on that narrow road towards life in him. The true Christian will take great care against a judgmental spirit, and as they hear Jesus command this, they will fight against it. With varying levels of success, success and failures, but they will do this until the day that he or she reaches glory with Jesus Christ. And when they see Christ on that day, they will, I think, look back and they will realize that one of the ways that Jesus provided for them in this life was the warning signs that he put along the path. That they actually helped them to walk forward even with all of their stumbles. So my friends, Jesus gives us such warnings because such warnings are actually a grace. They're actually part of God's guiding hand that tells us like a dad to a son or to a daughter, no, go this way. Don't go that way. That's dangerous. You go this way. It's the best way. This is God doing that for us. The Christian duty of brotherly and sisterly rebuke is one that must be entered so very carefully. If you approach it with a critical spirit that looks down upon another Christian, then my friend, you have to heed the warning of Jesus Christ. Understand, he says, if you judge in that kind of a way, you will be judged. 
And that should make us pause and consider our own approach to other people. But then, if we know Jesus, we must very quickly look to Jesus, our only rescue against a self-righteous, critical spirit towards other people. The one who came and lived the perfect life, never judging people inappropriately, went to the cross, shedding his blood, paying the price for your sins and my sins, your critical spirit and my critical spirit, dying on the cross, going to the grave. He rose again so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins, including our judgmental critical spirits, and that we might be empowered by God to actually begin to not live life that way. So if this is you, and I would suspect that this is all of us at one time or another, let us look to Jesus, our only hope, our only rescue against such a critical spirit towards other people. And remember this truth. Keep this in mind, this guideline. It must be at the heart of any approach that we take to challenge another Christian when such a challenge is needed in our brother or sister's life. The second guideline that Jesus gives us is before you judge another, you must humbly judge yourself. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. My friends, bad brotherly judgment is the result of bad spiritual vision. You must see the speck, the tiny little fragment of either dust or straw that is in the other person's life. We all with our self-righteous spirits, we will begin to notice all the little flaws in other people. You see the speck. You see that tiny little fragment that's in that person's life that is, that is in their eye, so to speak. But you do not see the beam. You do not see the log, that obvious, large, protruding object that is coming out of your own eye. And of course, what Jesus means is that you are quick to point out something wrong in another person while neglecting the very large areas of obvious sin in your own heart and in your own life. You're quick to see other people's faults, whether they be small or large faults, but you have taken no time to consider the elephant-sized sins that are in your own life. Now, this does not mean that one must be perfect in order to challenge or question or even rebuke a brother or sister over sin. If that were the case, then none of us would perform the responsibilities that Christ has given to us in the church. But it does mean that we must always tread prayerfully and humbly and watchfully when we do so. As Paul again says in Galatians 6 verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we must help restore that other brother or that other sister 
but we must do so by also watching our own selves against temptation. So bad brotherly judgment is the result of bad spiritual vision. It is to focus only upon that other person's errors while neglecting to look down and look inside at the gargantuan-sized sins that are in your own life that you need to deal with first. And there is a name for this bad vision. Jesus gives it to us in verse 5. He says it's hypocrite. He says, you hypocrite. And we considered that word, if you recall, back in chapter 6. That word hypocrite was, was used, if you remember, in ancient Greek as the name for an actor in a play. But as words do over time, it took on a more negative meaning for someone who acts in a phony way before other people. Well, this is the pretender. This is the dissembler who gives a false or misleading appearance in order to conceal the truth about themselves. They put on a display so that others will think well of them when in reality their own hearts are quite corrupt. Well, Jesus uses it here to refer to those who have all kinds of sin areas that are not being dealt with. Private sins and public sins, no doubt. And yet they have the audacity to point out the sins of other people. They put on a show, acting as a legalist who puts other people in their place, but they themselves have no intention of dealing with their own pride, their own self-love, or their own idolatries. They're pretenders, they're hypocrites, because they are not real. What you see is not what you get when it comes to these people. There is a clear demonstration of this, actually, that's given in the Bible by one of the characters of the Bible who is actually so very close to God, who walked with God, a man who, who sang of God, who wrote psalms about God, and who praised God before his people. But he, too, had an eye problem in more ways than one. I want to invite you to look at this man with me. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And I want to look at the first uh, six or seven verses of this passage. This is King David, who is a man who loved God, who is after God's own heart. And yet David was a man who took his eyes off of the Lord and he put his eyes upon a woman, a gal named Bathsheba. And watching her, he lusted after her. And after lusting after her, he committed adultery with her. She was married to another man named Uriah. And when this got David into some trouble, he ended up arranging for the murder of Uriah. So David, God's man, not only lusted after a woman and had adultery with a woman, but he arranged for the murder of the woman's husband. A great sin. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, a prophet by the name of, by the name of Nathan he comes to David and he offers, them, offers him a very wise rebuke. Notice this text. It says in 2 Samuel 12, verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. 
and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd or to prepare for the guest who had come to him. And he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan, in verse 7, said to David, You are the man. David had put blinders on. He was so quick to pass judgment upon this hypothetical man that he didn't realize that he himself was the one who had robbed another person of their precious treasure, their wife, that he was the one who had slain an innocent person, that he was the one who was guilty. David's eyes were blinded, and he had become the hypocrite. The same eye problem, if you go back to our passage, the same eye problem was found in the apostle Peter, Again, one of the very men who was listening to Jesus up on that mountainside. Later on in the New Testament, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it says of Peter, who was also referred to as Cephas, it says that when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul is rebuking Peter, a brother in Jesus Christ, because Peter at one point had been showing love to Gentiles, non-Jews who had believed in Jesus, who were followers now of the one true God. And, and, And Paul rebukes him because though Peter was having fellowship with these men, When Jewish leaders from Jerusalem came, all of a sudden, he departed from those men, as if those men were no longer good enough to be in his company, and he went and played the hypocrite by only eating with these Jewish brethren. Peter played the hypocrite. He declared one thing, but he lived in another way. So I think you can see that whether it be David or Peter or any one of us, it is so easy for a Christian to put on blinders, to have eyes that are unable to see our own hypocrisy. And this is one of the reasons why we need other Christians to help us, because we don't always see the things that we need to see. We need prophets like Nathan. We need men like Paul to rebuke us in our lives that we might see where we have gone wrong. So my friends, we must humbly consider the judgment of our own eyes. We must take very care, very very great care over how we are looking and how we are considering other people. But all that being said, the solution is not to leave one's erring brother or sister alone, but to first take a close look at yourself. For us to first take a close look at ourselves, and then go help that brother or sister. Verse 5, again, I think, confirms this. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So first we must take that thing out of our own eyes, that large thing that protrudes and is so obvious, And then he says, we will see clearly to take that speck, that smaller item, out of our brother's eye. 
we first are to take a close, careful look at ourselves, but then we do have a responsibility to others. Oh, my friends, if you know Jesus as your Savior, if you know him as your Lord, then understand that you have been given the Spirit of God who is resident inside of you. And therefore, you have been given the wisdom that you need to be able to render right judgments in your life, even regarding the other people who are in your life. If it was just you, you shouldn't say a word. But with God's Spirit and the power of Jesus, you not only have the responsibility, you have the ability to be able to render right judgments in your life. My dear friends, do you realize that one day, you as a Christian will judge the entire world and you will even judge the angels whom God created? It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, Do you not know that the saints, that's Christians, that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? If we have that kind of responsibility ahead of us as spirit-endowed men and women purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, if that's something we're going to do, then certainly with this spirit, we are capable of dealing with matters of this life, even matters of rendering judgments. We have been given important responsibilities to render verdicts in this world. We're going to talk more about our congregational responsibilities in this regard when we get to chapters 16 and 18 of this book. But for now, simply know that you do have a charge to help your brother or your sister when they are caught in any sin. As D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, writes, In the brotherhood of Jesus' disciples, censorious critics are unhelpful. But when a brother in a meek and self-judging spirit removes the log from his own eye, he still has the responsibility of helping his brother remove his speck. We have that responsibility. And, and you know what's interesting? We looked at King David. We saw his grievous sin. But did you know that, that David repented? In Psalm 51, we see his psalm of repentance and listen carefully to what he says there. It says in Psalm 51, I'm going to read verses 9 through 13. Just listen to these. David prays, he says to God, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now catch this. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David had done ghastly things. And yet he went to God in a spirit of repentance and in that spirit of repentance, he says, After, Lord, you have cleaned me. After, Lord, you have forgiven me. Then enable me, Lord, to go and teach transgressors about your ways. He was ready to take the beam, the log, out of his own eye. And now he was ready to go and help people with their specks. 
The Christian duty of brotherly and sisterly rebuke is the one that must be entered humbly. We must, when we do this, first consider our own lives, taking account of any unconfessed sin and addressing any problems in our relationships with other people, whether they be a spouse or a friend or a fellow church member or anyone. We must then make right our relationships with other people while confessing our sins to our all-forgiving God. And it would then be wise, I think, to spend some time meditating upon the gospel of grace, the work of Jesus to save sinners, sinners like you and me, from every manner of sin that we have committed against him. And then, I think, it would be good to pray to God for guidance and for help, asking him to go before us when we talk to that other person. And then, after we have humbled ourselves, after we have looked to the gospel, after we have prayed, we should go to that brother or sister and say something like, my friend, I know that I am a great sinner and actually have no right on my own to ever come before you and talk to you about this. And if you know of any false or sinful way in me, then please let that be known right now. But let me tell you, my friend, that I have noticed that there is some sin in your life. And then humbly relate what that sin is. Challenge that individual to turn from it and be willing to pray with them. Once we see clearly we do have the responsibility to help each other. Once we pull out the log, we have to be about the speck. Third guideline that Jesus gives us is before you judge another, you must carefully consider the person that you judge. Look with me at verse 6. It says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now that seems kind of out of place, doesn't it? This verse, though it's unique, I, I think it does seem to fit with verses 1 through 5. It is a metaphor that I think reveals a danger that we must be aware of in our approach to helping people with their specks. The terms dogs and pigs seem to be pejorative references to other people, especially people who might respond poorly to what we want and need to offer them. He says, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So they respond poorly to what we give them. And this verse doesn't seem to fit with the next section in this sermon, verses 7 through 11, which are about prayer. It just doesn't seem to connect at all with what he's going to say in those verses. So I think this likely connects with the topic that we have been discussing this morning, offering our judgments to others when we see them in sin. I think with this metaphor, Jesus is telling us that we must discern between the wise and foolish recipients of our rebuke. There are those who will receive it humbly. Praise God when Christians receive it humbly. They won't like it, and it will hurt when they hear it, but they will acknowledge the truth of it and the kind spirit of the one who offered it and rebuked them, and it will help them grow in further godliness in their life. 
But there are also those who have proven to be unwilling to receive such challenges or such rebukes. They have previously shown themselves to be unwilling to listen and unwilling to pray and to consider whether they may in fact be wrong and unwilling to turn when they are in error. Furthermore, they have also responded aggressively when they were challenged, revealing hearts full of pride and unrepentant resistance. I think Jesus is telling us to take all of this into account before we go to a person. In fact, I think it sounds an awful lot like the book of Proverbs, chapter 9, verses 7 and 8, that says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Scoffers don't want anything to do with biblical, godly, loving, humble rebuke. But wise people do. They will cherish it like water on a hot day. Dogs and pigs were animals that were known for their viciousness and often referred to in that way in the New Testament. They don't receive the holy offerings given to them by the sons and daughters of King Jesus. Instead, they take what's been given and they trample it under their feet, disregarding it entirely. What's more, they often go on the attack themselves, making it about you and about their perceived sins that you have committed rather than about themselves. Well, if these are Christians, then they're walking after the flesh. And probably a far more pointed warning is needed for them. Perhaps, perhaps even church discipline. But Jesus tells us to be leery about offering brotherly, godly rebuke to these types because they will not receive it. The Christian duty of brotherly and sisterly rebuke is one that must be entered so very judiciously. As careful as you should be about humbling yourself before God before you go to a brother or sister with an issue, you should also be careful before you go to one, even one who carries the name of Christian, when that person has a deep spiritual resistance to what you're going to bring to them. That would be the time to get some good counsel from others as to how to proceed. So we should judge other Christians with the wise instructions of Christ. My friends, let me ask you today, are you holding other people to impossible standards that you would never want to be held to yourself? Is this the case with your spouse? Is this the case with your children? Is this the case with your neighbor? Is this the case with other people in your life? Are you insisting that everyone take the same view as you in areas of Christian freedom, those areas that are somewhat at least unclear in Scripture? Do you look down upon those who take a slightly different point of view over what's permissible and over what's not permissible than you do? Are you harboring judgmental thoughts or uncritical words about others that show their weakness while elevating your own stature? Are you critiquing them in order to elevate yourself? Are you quick to point out other people's wrongs while failing to consider your own? Do you take delight in rebuking other people or pointing out 
other areas of failure on their part? Do you use mediums like social media as a hammer, waiting for opportunities to point out why your opponents on the other side politically are so very wrong? And are you quick to urge repentance from others while demonstrating an unrepentant spirit yourself? If this is you, please know that this pride of heart is the opposite of God's right judgment. And it is deserving of his enduring condemnation. It is a condemnation that I must admit I deserve. But also know, as I have found, that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation, but there is overwhelming kindness. He shed his blood to pay for our sins, and he shed his blood so that we could know the kind and gentle Lord who welcomes us into his fellowship, that we might begin to look and talk like him, even when it comes to the way we communicate with other people. And know that in Christ Jesus, you can develop like him a spirit of meekness towards other people in out-of-this-world kind of humility. I recently began reading what appears to be just a wonderful book by an author named Dane Ortland, and it's called Gentle and Lowly. He writes in the opening part of this book these incredible words. He says, All Christian toil flows from fellowship with a living Christ whose transcending, defining reality is gentle and lowly. He astounds and sustains us with his endless kindness only as we walk ever deeper into this tender kindness can we live the Christian life as the New Testament calls us to. Only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ will we leave in our wake, everywhere we go, the aroma of heaven and die one day having startled the world with glimpses of a divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. End quote. The kindness of Jesus is more than enough to match and best and remove your critical spirit. So repent of it and look to him for grace. And finally today, let me say that when it comes time to help our fellow brothers and sisters with the sins that so easily entangle them, just like they so easily entangle us. Let us follow our Savior's instructions. Let us recognize the danger. Let us humbly judge ourselves. And let us carefully consider the other person. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the opportunity to hear from it, to hear from Jesus. Lord, these are hard words. They convict us, Lord. It is your word that does the convicting. And yet, Father, you don't leave us there. You don't leave us merely feeling sorrowful and guilty over our sinfulness. But, Father, you direct us, even in this book, to the cross of your Son. And, Lord, it is to him alone and his kindness and gentleness that he displays 
that, Father, we can stand. We pray that you would help us to love our brothers and sisters enough to push through the awkwardness, Father, by removing the beams and logs and elephant-sized sins that are so obvious about us, Father, by confessing them and making them right with other people. And then, Father, in love, going to that brother or sister and pointing out the needs that they have, that we might all help each other, Lord, until the day we stand holy and complete in the presence of your Savior and Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray these things in his name. Amen. I send you out with this word from Jude Jude, Jude 1, verse 2. He says, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. You are sent.